I want to talk to you about Rich Toward God and World Impact Sunday. Rich Toward God and World Impact Sunday. I hope you have a Bible in one form or another. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, 13 to 21. You know this parable. In fact, not all that long ago, I looked at it in a bit of a different way on our Sunday night series. That'll be tonight as well. We're working through the parables, 6.30 online. Luke 12, 13. Jesus is uh, speaking, and someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, Ma'am, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And Jesus said to them, them as the disciples, Jesus said to the disciples, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. That's where that saying comes from. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now the parable ends and Jesus speaks to his disciples. This isn't parable. This is Jesus making a statement. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's just pray. It's not that we're not sharp and alert, but we may miss what your Holy Spirit wants to say to us, or we may think your Holy Spirit just wants to talk to someone else. And so we come and we just sort of unbutton our hearts and just open them up. We sang about how good you are. And that means you're good when you speak truth to our hearts. Even if it's challenging truth, you do it in love for our own good. Bless your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It's always an ugly moment when someone shouts out while the preacher's preaching. It's just awkward. And that's kind of what happens in our text. If you glance back to the very beginning of this 12th chapter, you'll see Jesus is speaking words of life and light on some very important issues of the kingdom. He's been teaching the crowds about the love and the care of Father God. That's in verse 6 and 7. He's been teaching about the reality of 
sin and judgment and hell. Yes, Jesus uses that word. That's in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. He's just been talking to the people about the danger of shunning or rejecting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit when he speaks to our souls. That's in verses 8, 9, and 10. So this is really important stuff. And then suddenly, without any warning, there's somebody sitting there who shouts out, 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There's no indication from the passage that this man was not entitled to the money he was seeking. There's nothing to hint that his request was dishonest or rooted in anything illegal. I mean, if the man were after money that wasn't rightly his, Jesus could have solved the dilemma instantly simply by saying, thou shalt not steal. And that would have settled the matter. But, but this is different. Here, in Jesus' response, there's another uh, less obvious sin that's about to be exposed by our Lord. So the warning is not, in verse 13, it's not beware of injustice. It's beware of covetousness. So this parable that Jesus moves into it's not directed toward injustice or theft, anything illegal. It's directed toward the invisible inward sin of greed. The warning from our Lord is not about obtaining wealth by unjust means. That's not the warning. The warning is setting the heart upon wealth, even if it's rightly and properly earned. Jesus is aiming his words at our hearts and their desires. Apparently, more than this man needs his inherited wealth, more than he needs the money, he needs this lesson on greed. This lesson from Jesus will do him more good than all the wealth in the world if, if he can see that Jesus is offering him freedom, if he has the eyes to see it. And so, our Lord, as he did over and over again, he launches into a story. Point number one. God was the one who had prospered this diligent landowner. You can see it in that 16th verse. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. You could easily miss it, but Jesus starts with what is most basic and, and I guess, most frequently overlooked. There's not a word from Jesus to indicate any lack of diligence on the part of this landowner. Apparently, he got up early, stayed up late, laboring over the land. He was a good worker. And yet, for all that, Jesus is pretty careful to point out that, in a sense, it was the land that produced the crop not the landowner. Right there. True, this farmer, he planted and he tended and he harvested. I mean, he worked. But, but did he make the rainfall? 
did he make the sunshine? Did this, did this farmer put fertility in the soil? Did he make the seed crack open and multiply? Could he even explain the process? And the point I think Jesus is making, making to all of us, it has to do with the mindset from which greed springs. This is the root of distorted desire. If, if you view your wealth as a result of nothing but your own talent and effort, you will without doubt think of yourself as an owner rather than a steward. Well, Pastor Don, I'm not a farmer. I don't rely on the ground to produce my wealth. I really do produce my own goods. In my machine shop, in the financial institution, in my sales contacts, I run my business. And I guess you do, but really? Think a bit deeper. Who gives you the ability to walk around not strapped to an oxygen tank? Who gives you the kind of mind that can calculate numbers and draft up plans and make recommendations? Where did you get that mind? Who enables you to speak or breathe or move? Who put you in prosperous Canada instead of Haiti? I mean, the truth is, every one of us, every one of us earns our wealth with borrowed abilities. And, and this, is, this is exactly what King David said. There's this great passage I'm going to read. The dedication of the temple. Much like, much like our World Impact Sunday, you'll hear about the projects in a little while. Much like our World Impact Sunday, the people had responded so generously to David's appeal for funds... A huge offering has been received. And then notice what David says after the money has come in, as he's dedicating the temple, David prays, and here's what he says. First Chronicles 29, 11 to 16. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For... For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But... Who am I? He's a king, David. Who am I? What is my people that we, that we should be able to offer willingly for, look. All things come from you and here. Of your own, we have given you. For we are strangers before you, sojourners. As all our fathers were, our days on the earth are like a shadow. 
there is no abiding. The rich fool says, take your ease, soul. You have many years. That's very different, isn't it, from being a shadow? You ever see your shadow on a sunny day? And then go back in the evening and see if you can find it? No abiding. I think about my own life and how old I am. And I thought it would take longer to get here. Anybody else notice that? Didn't you think it would take longer? Rather than about three weeks? There's no abiding. 16, oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house and for your holy name, it comes from your hand. All is your own. What a beautiful attitude. When my children were little, talking about Christmas, they would come to me and ask me for $10 to buy me a Christmas present. And I would be pretty excited and I'd gladly give them the money. I was pleased that they were wanting to give me something. Fair enough, but only a fool would think I was coming out 10 bucks ahead on the deal. As I start to walk more deeply with Jesus, I've, I'm learning, I'm learning to look at all my gifts, all my offerings to the Lord in the same way. Everything comes from his hand. And Jesus called this rich landowner a fool because he just forgot that. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. We aren't owners. We're stewards. Point number two. Jesus calls this man a fool because he became selfish in his heart. You can't help but notice the abundance of pronouns in all of this. And, and he thought to himself, here's what I shall do, for I have nowhere to put my crops and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain, my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, be merry. Now remember, while the crowd is listening, 12.1 says he's talking to his disciples now in this, in this account. Jesus is really teaching his disciples with this parable and and here's the thought. As you grow in Jesus, as you grow in Jesus, he begins to challenge and reshape certain fundamental attitudes of your heart. I mean, as you grow deeper in the Lord, it means moving on from basic outward areas of cleansing, lying, stealing, cursing, adultery, pornography. It moves on from those things to changing the way you think about your life and your time and your possessions, maybe most of all, your goals, your ambitions, what you're living for. He starts to shift that. He changes the targets of your ambitions. That's what's wrong with this wealthy landowner in Jesus' parable. He hadn't robbed anyone. He wasn't dishonest. 
And for a lot of people who call themselves Christians, that's as far as they ever launch into the life of the kingdom. I'm not doing a lot of bad stuff, Pastor Don. But while this man wasn't dishonest in deed, Jesus still says he was wicked in his heart before he did anything. He was sinful in the way he viewed what he had. His life is too small. His, his heart is shriveling as his barns are expanding. It's interesting, isn't it? Doesn't happen very often. That in the parable, God calls this man a fool. The Bible, the Bible uses that term pretty carefully and pretty specifically. We shouldn't do it, but we tend to rather cruelly describe someone as a fool when we just don't think they're too bright. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible always uses the term in reference not to a person's intelligence, but to, to that person's relationship to God. So you, you see things like, the fool has said in his heart, there is, there is no God. Foolishness, like wisdom, is always tied to uh, how sensitively and how deeply my attitudes are shaped by God and aimed at God. The wise person does that with everything. The fool does it with nothing. But what we learn here in this parable, we learn a fool doesn't have to actually say there is no God. The fool can just, the fool can just act as though there is no God. To his credit, this farmer does, I mean, he does stop to think about his goods. It's in that 17th verse. He stops to consider what might be the necessary next step to the prosperity that God is bringing into his life. 17, and, and he thought to himself. There, there was the opportunity. But for all that, even though he pauses, he's still a fool because God isn't in his proper place. Even if this man professes God, he has no sense, he has no sense that his goods come from God and he has no sense of the responsibility that he has with those goods. He doesn't think that through. So in short, this man is a fool because however much he reads the scriptures, however often he drives his children to youth night at the church, however often he prays and worships with the congregation, he lives he lives as if there is no God when it comes to his wealth. Look at it. All, all he can think of, the very best plan this genius can come up with is, I, I got to stockpile this stuff. That's it. Do you see the point? I mean, he can't possibly use all that he has been given. That's why he has a storage problem. I mean, a person only needs so much, and with this multiplying, dying, lost world all around him, he thinks, he thinks the very best use of his wealth is to 
pile it up for his future pleasure. This is the best plan he can come up with. Everything's for my enjoyment. There, I thought it through. That's my financial plan. It's not uncommon, that plan. I make more, so I buy more. I make more, so I have more. That's the fool's financial plan. I make more, so I can get more. There's a sense in which nothing measures the stature of a Christian like the youth of use of wealth. It might be the greatest test of discipleship. And here's why. Here's why. It's, it's because nothing allows me to pursue my own interest and my own desires like wealth. It's just I can do more stuff than the person who doesn't have money. We all know that. But here's the problem. There is nothing more detrimental to my walk with Jesus than a life focused on pursuing my interests and my desires. That's the danger of covetousness in a nutshell. Three. This man is a fool because he thinks he can put time in his barn like his grain. Listen to him. And I will say to my soul, this is self-think. This, this, is, this, is, this is the reasoning process. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, there's the word, fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared... Whose will they be? Look, look, look at that 19th verse. There's such irony there. You have ample goods for many years. So many goods equals many years. He, he thinks somehow he can bank his future years along with his goods. Or he thinks at least that many goods secure him for many years. That's exactly what can happen with the accumulation of wealth. You, you start to tie together what you have with what life is all about. You start to think that life is obtained or at least secured with the accumulation of stuff. And that's, that's what Jesus warns against. That's what he warns his disciples, the Christians, the people sitting here. Me. This is what Jesus warns us about at the very beginning of this parable. He said to them, isn't this interesting? Take care and be on your guard. I mean, you think those are the same thing, right? One, take care. Two, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think we're meant to see the contrast between 19 and 20. 
19, I have many years. 20, you're checking out tonight. I mean, there's just a world of difference between many years and tonight. I mean, here's the lesson. None of us is immortal, and that truth has to be more than just, I mean, we sing about it. We have that grasp of things theologically. But my, my temporary existence, right now, right here on earth, and my accountability for my use of my material goods, it has to shape my lifestyle. Here's what I think it means. You sort it out for yourself. Here's what I think it means. It means I haven't handled my wealth properly until I can leave it all tonight, stand before my creator, and know that there is nothing in the use of my wealth up to that point that will appear ridiculous in the eyes of Jesus. I can leave tonight and know that there's nothing in the use of my wealth that will look ridiculous in the eyes of Jesus. Now, I might as well be honest with you, I'm not there yet. Maybe you are. I'm not. And all of us are better at policing other people than we are at policing our own greedy hearts. But we all have this problem. And Jesus calls his disciples, he calls his disciples to pursue this issue diligently, apparently, each and every day. I can never rest. I can't rest in this battle with my desires for more. 15 says I have to take care, and then I have to be on my guard. So the idea is, Don, you can't let up on this battle for two seconds. You can't either. How giving for, how giving keeps the heart rich. We're almost done. Twenty-one. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. So here's the contrast. We, we look at those words there. Treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The, the two directions. There's only two. Now, those words aren't part of the parable, verse 21. This is just a direct statement of Jesus to his disciples. And, and the hard message of these words from Jesus is, is clear. I can't, I can't store up wealth for myself and be rich in God at the same time. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you have some sleight of hand to change those words around. You can't store up wealth for yourself and be rich in the life of God. You can earn a great deal. But you can't just store it up for your own use and be rich toward God. So if the great danger in this parable is hoarding wealth, then the great solution, here we are, the great solution might be to become a generous giver of what God has given you. So, so even before this is an issue of missions, like next Sunday, it's an issue of, of my heart becoming rich toward God. It's a matter of 
It's a matter of, of, of stepping out of the parade of fools. Even before this is an issue of reaching the lost, it's an issue of protecting my own soul. You see, I know my own heart. I know my own heart. It's probably a lot like yours. I know that my standard of living will always rise to whatever level of income God blesses me with. That's a huge problem. I need to come to terms. Oops, I lost my flower. How's that? Is that okay? I need to come to terms with the most basic issue of mature discipleship. Here it is. It's the same issue for you. We all have the same issue. How much is enough? How much do I need? And at what point am I just consuming which should be invested in God's kingdom? Let me let me let me get right down to it. As I mature in Jesus, I should be starting to think thusly. A three hundred thousand dollar a year income does not require a three hundred thousand dollar a year lifestyle, right? A $300,000 a year income. Put whatever number you want there. I just put Pastor Chris's income. <laughs> a $300,000 a year income doesn't require a $300,000 a year lifestyle. A $300,000 a year income might require a $200,000 a year lifestyle and $100,000 into missions around the world. But our minds don't naturally go there. Our minds don't naturally go there. I can't deal with that issue for you. I have a hard enough time dealing with it for me. But that is what this parable is all about. That 15th verse. And he said to them, take care, Don. Put your name in there. And be on your guard against all covetousness. You have to take care. And you have to be on your guard, both. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Very quickly, here's how joyful, sacrificial giving fights greed and covetousness and makes you rich toward God. So I have five points, but don't panic. These are like 10 seconds a point. A, here's, here's what sacrificial giving does. A, sacrificial, joyful giving expresses gratitude toward God. Unlike the rich fool, it recognizes God as the source of everything I have. B, sacrificial, joyful giving makes my life a blessing to others. That is, it extends what God has given me into the lives of others. It's not soul, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It's soul, there are needs. C, Sacrificial, joyful giving keeps my greed in check. But here's the point. The only kind of giving that helps my soul fight covetousness, the only kind of giving that does that is 
sacrificial. In other words, don't just hear that as an introductory part of the point. It's the key point. Giving has to be sacrificial before it does my soul any good. If I only give what I can easily part with and afford, then the real benefit of my giving will be missed. I, I need to give to the extent that I can no longer afford to do everything I want to do. That's killing covetousness. D. Sacrificial, joyful giving can actually bring redemption to the lost as I invested in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that this is the most meaningful use of worldly wealth. It's the one way the fruit of my wealth can pass from the temporal into the eternal. Christians want to relieve all suffering, especially eternal suffering. E, and we're done. Sacrificial joyful giving shows I value God and his eternal kingdom more than the material things of this world. Otherwise, I'm just saying it, it's just talk. Until the use of my wealth demonstrates that much of my Christian life will be just talk. And here's the thing. If in the area of my wealth, my Christian life is just talk, don't be surprised if the power of the Christian life in other areas will also be just a matter of talk. It's all tied together. I hope no one will misunderstand this message. I have nothing whatsoever. Let it just ring from the rooftops. I have nothing whatsoever for Christians making money. Lots of money. Make all you can. And when you do, use it to make your soul rich toward God. I want to give you some examples. Now I'm going into my little missions announcement just so you guys know what I'm doing up there, because I don't always know what I'm doing down here. Here are some of the projects. They total about, uh, about $220,000. Project number one, we have Kirk Caulfield. He will be with us in person. He has two projects. I'm working with about 10 emails and I'm trying to find a quick way to... Here's from Kirk Caulfield. The first project is to launch a ministry training project with our church partner in Papua, Indonesia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The Pentecostal Fellowship reached out to us just over a year ago and asked if the PAOC could assist with provision of training for their pastors. We plan to launch the Ministry Essentials Training Program there in 2022 and are working now on the translation of the curriculum and providing training sessions for the instructors. The, the investment needed for this is $10,000. Maybe you got 10 grand. Write out a check. Just take care of that one. The second project is to launch a one-year graduate certificate in youth ministry for youth ministry in East Africa. The discipleship of youth has become a major need in the fast-growing church in this part of the world. The numbers alone present a challenge. For example, I mentioned this last Sunday, 77% of the population of Uganda are under the age of 25. 77% are 
are under the age of 25, but perhaps the bigger challenge is the cultural crisis of youth in East Africa as they face grappling with social media-driven secular values. The need is for those who have a demonstrated call to youth ministry to benefit from leadership development to help them be more fruitful. We plan to offer them a one-year program to a carefully selected cohort of 10 to 12 youth ministers as a pilot project and scale it up in the following years. The investment needed is 15. So Kirk's looking for 25,000. Jed and Deb look, J and D, almost blew it. Uh, we, we support them in a restricted access nation. And they're launching a ministry into a totally unreached people group. And they're looking for $30,000 to get that project off the ground. That is cool. These aren't just people who haven't uh, responded to the gospel. They're people who have never heard it. So there's, there's workers, there's translating material, and J&D are heading that up. Four, Adrian and Sharon Thomas. We're going to try and raise $40,000. The need... The total need is 120000 for building houses for the family care, seminary, and ministry center, and their offices. Anything contributed toward this will be helpful. Adrian and Sharon, God has just uh, opened up a wide, wide door there that they never dreamed of. Uh, in, the, in the last few years, when they meet with pastors to do ministry training and, and financial help, they're getting like seven, eight, nine hundred pastors that come sitting outside. Um, they all need training. They've, they've, they've got land. They've started building. They've been raising money. They've borrowed from the PAOC, but they do have to pay it back, and we're going to try and help them with a substantial gift there. Ian and Tiffany Rowley. Uh, they've got a donation to, to help with I got so much stuff here. Just a minute. This is from Rowley's. Last year you raised money, Cedarview, for purchase of land for the Global Student Center. I emailed a video to Chris. You're going to see it next week. And we're now off to phase two. They got the land. They've started building. We'd love for Cedarview to partner with us again. Phase two of Project 130, the construction of the center. Some of the stats to the new 200-bed dorm center. It's going to have parking, have a student center, have a library, church, classrooms, girls' dorm, boys' dorm, rentable office space. This will be the hub for community, discipleship, outreach, church planting, and leadership development. We're excited to see what God is going to do. That's Rowley's. We'll have, they're not going to be here, but we'll have a video right to Cedarview on that whole thing. Murray. $20,000 for where most needed. He gets all the phone calls when the bottom falls out on all sorts of things. Seven, Zimbabwe. Uh, they're looking to refurbish um, a wing of the old Bible school there and make it a ministry center for children, grades one through seven. And they're trying to raise $25,000 for that. Anyway, long and short is it's $220,000. But I think we could do it. I think we could do it. If you can accomplish two things at the same time, meet these kind of needs around the globe, and 
free your soul from covetousness and make you rich toward God, that's what we call a win-win. It's a win-win. Let's give God a chance to do something great next Sunday, okay, church? Thank you, Lord, for this time. We're grateful. And I just pray for your blessing on next week. One thing you're very good at, you're good at taking a few loaves and fishes and feeding 5,000 people. You're good at multiplying. And so all week long, people here in different rooms in the building and people watching, you need, Father, to speak to us when we're at our devotions. Holy Spirit, talk to us. Make us all rich toward God. To step out of the parade, this world's parade of fools that just consume and touch the world with the grace and love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name I pray. Amen.